become an annual event instigated by Chandi Pereira who, uh, but he's not here today because he's, he's recently married and I think he's on a honeymoon <laughs> so this is uh, also a reflection uh, because uh, to have gratitude is something that you need to contemplate your life in a way that's different in, in the way we tend to ref oftentimes uh, dwell on uh, what's gone wrong or what should have been or oftentimes what our parents should have done in the Western world, we're, we tend to see our parents through critical eyes more than through gratitude. Uh, where in uh, Sri Lanka, I'm, I think it's more the other way. Or in Thailand, the attitude of gratitude uh, to parents is very uh, considered very important. So this is uh, <coughs> a cultural Difference. And it's interesting that a place like Amravati, where uh, the east and west, the twain meets, the, where the, the Western Buddhists, Eastern Buddhists, come together, and we learn from each other in a way that uh, both are, you know, what it's like to the, the good qualities of of uh, Asian tradition or culture that's developed out of a Buddhist uh, philosophy or religious perception and a Western uh, European culture or civilization that, that has a very different background based on, on uh, Judaism, Christianity and modern science. And it in, uh, it's interesting to notice in the past 50 years how many, how, ma how much interest there is in the Western world in Buddhism. In the Buddhist uh, terms, uh, having a human birth is considered a, a great fortune. It's considered uh, uh, a birth that is uh, hard to get in terms of you believe in rebirth or attuned to that way of thinking uh, that we don't have just one life uh, and, and at the end of it it's completely nothing after that that uh, there's this sense of uh, and, it, and it's more coarse aspects of reincarnation and it's more subtle aspects we call it rebirth and so this, this is a way of, of contemplating that this life is uh, we can see it in terms of a one-off situation without any, you know, it doesn't matter what we do because in the end it's just oblivion anyway. There's one way of looking at it. Uh, we can be caught up in the idea that if we fail in this one, then we don't get another chance. Either you're condemned to heaven or you're condemned to hell or you go to heaven. Or you might sustain yourself in some kind of neutral state that's pretty dreary, sound limbo or whatever. But the fact is we don't really know. We don't. These are, these are, we're talking about something that happens uh, when our body is dead. So we, we don't know, we, we can't really imagine that, what that would really be. We can, we can imagine it, but we can't, we don't really know what it is. Because our 
experience now is one of consciousness, feeling, sensation, uh, in a uh, incar- uh, incarcerated in a in a form, conscious form for a lifetime, and uh, for from what we how we perceive ourselves in the universe that we're living in, uh, it we with you know we can just be uh, culturally conditioned to perceive it according to what we're told and operate from from uh, those kind of uh, attitudes or uh, in uh, more spiritual awakening states we're we're opening and contemplating what it's what is consciousness what is sensitivity what is life in a way that we're reflecting on it observing and, and noticing paying attention rather than just operating from preconceptions or attitudes or assumptions that are never questioned I remember in uh, Thailand going there the the um, we were encouraged in the monastic in the monasteries to contemplate the goodness of our lives now this was something that was quite strange to me because uh, uh, I'd never really thought of it in, the, in that way I, mean, I was very much aware of what what was wrong with myself or I had become very critical of my parents of the society that I was born into and grew up in in the in the class or the group or the peer group that I uh, was uh, living with uh, one could just one was more aware of what was wrong their their deficiencies their weaknesses and faults uh, than uh, aware of their goodness the good qualities that they have and that also applied to myself thinking in terms of seeing myself through what's wrong what isn't very good or the weaknesses and in the uh, Thai forest tradition the uh, Lung Po Cha was very keen on us contemplating the goodness of our human birth well that never occurred to me that human birth was particularly good fortune <laughs> I mean I was getting quite cynical when I ordained by the time I became a monk I was much more uh, kind of looking at it as a, as a kind of cosmic bad joke because uh, it didn't seem to have any point to it it didn't have any purpose uh, and uh, it, it uh, just the, the kind of attitudes that, that seemed to be common uh, around me in those days where people were just uh, didn't weren't looking very deeply and, and mainly just seeking pleasure and uh, experience and excitement and then there were the endless kind of uh, anxieties and fears and uh, emotional problems neurotic hang-ups that, that everyone seemed to be experiencing in societies like this one or in the, in the United States where I'm originally from where people tended to uh, you know even though they had everything were not particularly uh, it didn't particularly give them any great uh, confidence and sense of self-respect or inner peace just seemed to, they seemed to get more kind of neurotic and and uh, anxious than they ever were so what is the, the purpose of our lives you know why why are we born? What does being human mean? Does it have any, you know, is it, uh, is it just a one-off situation? You're born, grow up, get old and die and that's it? Well, one thing you can know is you don't know. I mean, other people might have views about it and they might be very interesting views or very good views or even they might even be right but the fact is we don't really know in terms of direct experience because uh, we haven't experienced physical death yet 
Except it's interesting to talk to people who have had these uh, uh, kind of death experiences, uh, and but they don't fully die, they come back. And uh, almost all of them see it in a very positive light. Their experience of death is, uh, I've talked to most of them, their, their fear of death is gone after that. They no longer have any fear about it. And the uh, death experience was actually a pleasant one rather than a, than a than an unpleasant one. But I haven't had any of those, so I don't know. Just what they say, I <laughs> listen to. <laughs> but knowing I don't know, knowing that that I will know when when the when when the body dies. But awakening to life as as it experienced now, then how what, what, how can we live our lives so that we do find happiness in it, so we do uh, have inner peace, <coughs> so we can appreciate the good things of our own, of our families, of our humanity, of our society, without being continually obsessed and overwhelmed by the things that we don't like about it. Well, just applying to oneself, for example, is, you know, one can see, uh, in, say, in, in my own uh, ex life, you know, things that uh, I don't particularly like about myself, uh, you know, that I don't, you know, that I can be quite critical of, and I don't particularly, uh, we, you know, I wish, I used to wish that, that I didn't have those kind of tendencies or faults. But then the mind can get hung up on that alone, isn't it? Just seeing that is something, you know, bewailing or resenting the fact that, that uh, I didn't get, you know, the best of the best, perfection. That, that uh, and, and, you know, that, that, that I could just be angry and resentful the rest of my life over that. Or contemplating life. This, in, in this Buddhist meditative style, in that we, we're actually reflecting on, on life is like this. When we think of the law of karma and of rebirth, then we think this is what I must learn from. This, the way I am, the way my physical uh, appearance, my emotional habits, my um, abilities, mental abilities, all this uh, is something that, uh, say, I can, instead of see it, comparing it to thinking that if I had the best, all the best equipment, then my life would have been a much happier one. Or looking at it in terms of this, 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 is, the, this is what I learned from, from the, from the way I am, from the, this thing that I have now, in it, both its positive and negative aspects. So that makes life interesting, and then we also begin to have much more acceptance of everybody else because we're not thinking in terms of an ideal man or woman all the time about, you know, and then, and then always feeling there's something wrong with everybody because nobody quite fits into that ideal of perfection. I don't know anybody in the, in the Newspaper now they're talking all about Princess Diana's uh, problems and you know, think, well, she's got she's got as good as anybody on the planet. And they think, well, I'm certainly did it, glad I didn't didn't have to deal with her. <laughs> but when you're at physical beauty or social status and privilege and on and on like that. One can feel, if you don't have the best, then one can be quite resentful. But in terms of karma, looking at what I, the way I am, even, uh, you know, even my defects, my faults, have been important in my life because it's something you learn from. If, you, if your attitude towards it changes from resent, resentment and self-aversion toward uh, taking charge of life, uh, 
really seeing well, well, this is what I've got, this is what I learned from. This is, as we say in, in the Buddhist world, this is my karma. But it's not a kind of fatalistic resignation. You know, to, well, this is my karma in a negative way. It's, a, it's an embracing of it. This is, this, is, this is what I learned from. This is what I have to learn in this lifetime from being this way, from being a man, from being a, um, this kind of person, this character, this appearance in this, at this time. With my family, my parents, my social background. <coughs> A lot of people do have uh, tremendous problems of feeling inferior because maybe their social background isn't very, isn't uh, very good. Or all these, these different uh, racial perceptions and, uh, or class perceptions or or ideas of men and women and gender perceptions around which is better or which is the most fortunate or uh, seen in terms of, of, of the best, trying to choose out what is the best. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Because that's not the way it is. It's all we learn from the way it is. If we're born in, in a low status, in, whatever, in a poverty-stricken country, in, uh, with uh, insensitive parents, you can still learn from that. <laughs> that's, that's not, that's not a, an obstruction to enlightenment. Or being Princess Diana, brought up in privilege and wealth and, and uh, all the rest, you know, uh, we could still learn from that if we awaken, if we opened ourselves to life and decided to contemplate it, reflect upon it. Well, I noticed that, that in, in the old days, before I really understood this, then I would get very, I could, you know, the, the, uh, the fashion of my generation was to be very critical, especially of your mother. You know, back in the 50s, it was the mother that was blamed for everything. Uh, you know, if anything was wrong in your life, it was due to your mother. <laughs> and it's changed now. It's the fathers that are getting it. <laughs> Back in the 1950s, it was, uh, we all remember taking Psychology 100 at the university and then suddenly, you know, realizing, uh, you know, probably my, my fears and my social inadequacies and that was all due to my mother. <laughs> So this was, uh, and so the, the, you know, I remember it was, you know, sitting together with other students and discussing our mothers, what was wrong with our mothers. And because we were, we were all at that age, you know, 17, 18 years old, we we're trying to get away from them. And they're trying to hang on to us, we're trying to pull out. And <laughs> Well, that seemed, you know, even at that age, because when you're 18, you think you know everything anyway. And, uh, and you certainly see, know much more than your mother or father do. <laughs> and uh, that's the way it seems. And you remember determining, I was never going to do the same things, commit the same errors that my mother and father committed. You know? And I was going to learn from life, and I was going to make changes. I wasn't going to be like them. No, I have been, I, my mother and father were not Buddhist monks, so I have <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of my word. <laughs> uh, this is about the last thing I think they ever expected me to, I don't think they ever thought that I would ever be a Buddhist monk. That was not a possible perception in their, in their catalog of perception. But then in uh, monastic life, and, and living in a Buddhist country like Thailand, uh, the attitude was different. And, and living with, in, a, in uh, the Thai forest tradition, the Thai forest tradition is a meditative uh, monastic tradition. In the, uh, there's 
particularly uh, has particularly strong roots in the northeastern part of Thailand, called the Isan. And the Isan is is the poorest part of Thailand. Uh, it's you know it's the place nobody really wants to go, or like you talk to civil servants in Bangkok. The idea of being posted to Uborn or northeast Thailand is like must be for like a Russian going to Siberia. You know it's the it's the least uh, salubrious part of, of that country. Uh, and in those days, this was back in the 60s, it was, it was, it was a very poor area, very, uh, you know, uh, third world, rice-growing, undeveloped part of Thailand. But the Isan is very famous for producing some of the, 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 the greatest monks that, uh, in Thai history. You know, so, and so the attitude is that because life is so hard and difficult there, that it somehow that hardship uh, seems to build a lot of character. And uh, I do. I, uh, living in uh, east in northeast Thailand for ten years, I developed enormous respect for the for the Isan people because living living in uh, northeast Thailand and in, in uh, depending on those people, you know, and, and Knowing them and their villages, their village life, and so forth, uh, you know, I was getting beyond just the kind of tourist perception of them, or an anthropologist's view. I was really living in in a in as part of a of a community, like being in the family of that group, being integrated within that particular society itself. So I found it, you know, tremendous respect. Uh, for these people, that these village people that I would uh, live with every day for ten years, and then Lung Pon Cha was, of course, one of them. And he, but he was a he was exceptional, really, in the terms that he was he was a very uh, a very wise human being. And uh, even though he wasn't particularly well educated, he didn't go through the the Buddhist universities or anything. He was, uh, he was educated, you know, well enough. He was a very intelligent person, but his his gift wasn't on that level. It was more on his his insight, his wisdom, and his understanding of the human condition, uh, what it is to be a human being, what it is to be a man or a monk, or living or having consciousness, living within a human form with consciousness, being in this incredibly sensitive state all the time, having to deal with, with the endless problems, difficulties uh, that life presents to us no matter where we are. But Alung uh, Pacha being Buddhist, from a Buddhist family, Buddhist cultural background, he did have he had a very fortunate beginning, actually, because he did have something basically there in his in his whole in his cultural references in his perceptions to, that were based on wisdom. And then he developed his life, uh, his faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and and living his life his, his adult life as a Buddhist monk, uh, and. So one, because one couldn't help but admire and respect such a, such a human being, then everything he said had great significance. You know, you, you wouldn't dismiss anything he said. Uh, because you, you, you know, where you might dismiss it if your father said it, but not if Ajahn Chah, not if Ajahn Chah said it. So this was, uh, this is developing a sense of, of uh, respect and trust in, in an, in a human being, a different culture. Uh, he was only, I think, 15 years older than I was, but um, he seemed, you know, he was certainly fulfilled the, the father image in my life, the, the kind of ideal father, the wise, uh, compassionate father. But this kind of uh, this kind of 
role wasn't, wasn't particularly one I consciously sought after, but uh, it did seem to, you know, I did definitely feel when I met Nung Po Cha a sense of wanting to stay and learn from him. And so he was, his questioning into, you know, the, the reflection on being human. At the time when, when, he, when, when uh, the, the attitude in Thailand, of course, being Buddhist country, is that it's very fortunate to have human birth, and I used to kind of snicker at this. You know, I think that's, that's just cultural, uh, Thai culture, you know, thinking it was, uh, you know, just the way that they, you have to think if you're brought up in that system. But then, uh, when I started meditating, practicing meditation, I began to realize the great gift we have as human beings. And before, I never realized what they meant, you know, what, when, when the, in, the, in the Buddhist uh, terminology, what, hu human, what humanity really means. They use the word manusia. It's a, and it has the word man in it, actually. It says manut, manusia, human, well, probably all comes from the same source. <laughs> so the, the uh, manusia in, in, is considered a fortunate birth. And they even have such images of it's such a rare thing to be a human being that it's like a, a turtle out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and every once in a while it might act just by chance surface and, and there's a, a kind of round kind of donut-like uh, circle floating on top of the ocean and that turtle happens to, at that moment, its head enters the center of that donut. That's <laughs> that was the metaphor, that was the image of how rare it is to be born as human. So I thought, well, the human population is certainly increasing in <laughs> And turtles are getting better on the mark than that. <laughs> <laughs> or is, is, you know, if, if one just looks at human birth in terms of a physical one. But then it, it goes much deeper than that, just assuming that we're all human because we all have human, what we call human bodies. But the, the thing that, that uh, you know, really struck me as as profound about our humanity wasn't the physical side of it, because, uh, you know, orangutans and chimpanzees aren't, they're not that much different. <laughs> and, and we have, you know, we're, we're quite animal bodies, actually. But the thing, the, the, that, that which is, is uh, really expresses our humanity is our reflective ability. We have a reflective mind. In other words, or you can put it in terms we have a Buddha mind, because the word Buddha means uh, the awakened, awakenedness. So this awakenedness isn't like just just being awake in, in the in the kind of ordinary terms we think of that we are awake. It's really paying attention, being with the moment. This sense of awakenedness isn't just having your eyes open and sitting daydreaming or worrying about the future, to a Buddhist that wouldn't be awake. Awakeness is, is where there is mindfulness, there's attention, uh, and you're fully with this present moment. So that, then it realized how rare that is, to be fully awake. In even, you know, when I reflected on my own life, how much of my life was spent in a kind of fantasy world, or in, just in delusions of worry and anxiety or resentments or, you know, I used to wake up in the morning just feeling this kind of dread take me over, just waking up and thinking, oh, another day. Wonder, wonder what horrible things are going to happen today, that kind of thing. Before I became a monk, I was, I, I was getting, you know, really quite uh, depressed about life, thinking, you know, that it, 30 years old, I felt like kind of burnt out. Like my life didn't have any, you know, I kind of lived it and, uh, it, it, and, and somehow failed it. And, uh, and, and the days, you know, waking up in the morning was not particularly, you know, 
getting up and being another day to live and 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 practice meditation and and awaken to experience it was oh, another day what am i going to do today what should i and then 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 the the sense of of that there's something i've got to do that there's always this 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 kind of obsession in the background there is more you've got to do something you haven't done that you should be doing uh, you, there's, there's something you should be, you know, you've got to learn, you've got to get hold of that you don't have yet. And you've got to change, you've got to get rid of your bad habits. You've got to do something about it, get rid of them and you've got to become something. So this, uh, this seemed to increase as I grew older, this sense of, of inadequacy and, and this obsession about having to, that there's something I've got to do. In monastic life, uh, then this helped to reflect these, these kind of uh, tendencies. These were emotional habits. If you've been th through graduate school, for example, the pressures that I experienced in, in graduate school were so strong, you know, that you got this, you know, I couldn't have a cup of coffee without thinking, should I be taking time out to have coffee? I've got, a, I've got an exam coming. I'm go I've got to study. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there was all, it became obsessive, so that I couldn't really enjoy anything uh, unless I could kind of get drunk enough to forget about it. <laughs> so, so there was, the use of alcohol in university life is, uh, you know, if you don't meditate, then you've probably got to take to drink just to get through it. <laughs> but in, uh, but then in meditation, suddenly. I began to, because we, we monks were not allowed to drink. But we can reflect on these fears or these obsessions. Then living in a, in a monastic community that didn't, wasn't, that wasn't particularly the, the, uh, the, the cultural ambience that I was living in. It was a much more kind of um, life was, the, the Northeast Thai, the life was, was, was you know, doesn't really matter, you know, just have, you know, enjoy things, you know, don't make a problem and, and then they have this saying, my bin rai, you know, doesn't really matter, kind of do it tomorrow or whatever, so that this kind of drivenness uh, wasn't particularly part of the, of the uh, community spirit. But I could, but it helped to reflect it in myself because even though I was living in, uh, with Thai forest monks, I still had this incredible kind of obsessive uh, dr drive in me. You know, I always had to be doing something, had to be either fasting, had to be uh, doing things to like to not sleep, not laying down, or sleeping, sitting up, or or um, doing especially long alms rounds. Or uh, I felt unless I was really putting forth. 100% effort that, that it wasn't good enough. So this was, uh, and Lung Pon Char was wise enough to kind of uh, let me go on this way for a while, but he began to point out, you know, that this wasn't really what was expected. And that, uh, you know, that maybe I could uh, relax and, uh, and uh, eat my food without feeling... Uh, uh, without making a problem about it, or that I didn't have to always go to extremities in the practice. I think I thought in those days that that was, you know, going to extremities was what was expected. You know, forest monk, really tough, you know, don't give in to weakness, conquer your defilement. All this was, you know, carrying a flag and, you know, quite for a for a young young man, that's quite the kind of warrior style to it, you know, conquering the devil, getting rid of the enemy. But gratitude to parents then became, uh, you know, I noticed uh, Lung Pot Chard's mother uh, was a nun when I was uh, there the first few years, first three or four years. His mother was, uh, when, when her 
husband died and so forth, and she became uh, a Merchi or a Buddhist nun. And so every day, Lumpur Cha, when, when, when we'd pass the food, when we'd have our meal, we had this one meal a day, and when we come back from the alms round, we'd all go different villages, different collecting food, and then we'd come back, and we'd all put the food in a central place, and then uh, we'd distribute it. When the time came, we'd sit in, in lines with our bowls, and then uh, various monks were assigned to uh, distribute this food. Well, I noticed Lung Po Cha was always the first one. Of course, he was the teacher and the most senior. So, but he always kept aside food for his mother, who was a nun. They're these little kind of tiffin carriers, these layered, they're called pintos in Thai. And, and he'd always be putting this, you know, looking out for nice things he knew his mother liked and, uh, and then uh, looking after his mom, you know. <laughs> And then she died when, when I was there, and we had, uh, we had the most incredible funeral for her I've ever seen. Uh, we spent months preparing for it, uh, and Ajahn Chah was, had incredible imagination. Uh, he would have been a great kind of theatrical person. <laughs> but what we proceeded to do during that month <laughs> was to uh, where the where the temple is now, the Oposido Hall that exists now in, in Wat Pa Pong in Thailand. That wasn't there then. It was just a, a kind of flat land with a few trees on it. So there we built a grotto, cave grottos in a kind of circle, out of paper mache and bamboo, and we we spent. Afternoons weaving uh, uh, bamboo strips into basket-like forms, and then, and then we we built this thing up into kind of huge mountainous structures with little uh, tunnels through them into this center kind of circle, where they would burn the the corpse of Nungpochar's mother when the day came. So, and then then they covered all this all these bamboo kind of basket-like things we'd made and um, with, with newspaper and so forth and, and, that, and then spray painted it and make it look like, like rocks, like mountains. And it was, it was a bench, you know, it was quite high in, a, in a quite a large area. So then this was all Lumpur's idea. <laughs> to uh, a, a setting, stage setting, for the funeral of his mother. And I don't think I've ever seen anything like it since, either. So then, the day came, and, and, the, uh, and of course, uh, a monk of Ajahn Chah's stature was, uh, you know, in, especially in Northeast Thailand, was uh, so high that, of course, there were thousands and thousands of people came to uh, the funeral of his mother. And, and, of course, he reflected on the goodness of his parents. Well, he was from a farming family in the nearby village, near, near, near the Wat Ba Pong Temple. And it was, uh, and so he grew up as a, you know, far, they were kind of, you know, put, they weren't wealthy, but they, were, they weren't poor. They had land and they had, you know, the, for that part of Thailand they were, probably considered well enough off, you know, quite pillars of the community in the village, and highly regarded the family. I started contemplating my own, you know, I began to appreciate my own humanity as I, as I developed in meditation. So I began to recognize, you know, that instead of this cynical attitude of what a bad joke it is to be born as a human being, I began to appreciate the fact that I have, because the thing that I really value is this reflectiveness. This is what gives whole, the whole meaning to our lives. You know, if, if you don't know this, then, then life is more or less you, you get through it somehow, but it doesn't have much meaning to it. And, and uh, it, you know, you try to, live it as happily as you can. But when you, 
begin to recognize the gift that we have in, in, in our humanity, then we begin to, we, we don't even demand that our life be a successful or happy one. Because we're quite willing to learn from life as we have to live it and then experience it. That means physically, with health and uh, whatever health problems or physical weaknesses or disabilities that we might have, uh, as well as uh, emotional habits and, and uh, mental problems on, on that level. So this also, I began to appreciate my own parents because I realized how fortunate I was, because actually when I look back, I came from very good parents. And they, uh, they were, uh, you know, they, they, they provided uh, a very stable home life for my sister and I, and uh, they, you know, when, especially as you get older, you realize how difficult life is. And, uh, and how difficult life must have been for your mother and father <laughs> who, who didn't have all the advantages that my sister and I had you know, because we were born in the 30s and uh, my parents grew up at the time, you know, at the turn of the century so they were, they were kind of middle class people but they, they didn't, you know, they didn't have the options they were more or less expected and, and pushed and, and, and uh, forced into doing things. And then in the depression uh, of the 30s, my father, who, who was training to be a commercial artist, had to give up all his ambitions to just try to get enough food just for survival. You know, because they lost, the, they lost their money in the uh, depression. So these are the things that parents didn't really say much about, but you know they'd mention it now and then. And then I recognized how that that they had to, you know, by the time my sister and I came along, that that was their main interest was in trying to provide for us. And oftentimes parents want to give their children all the things they didn't have. <laughs> So they, they managed to encourage us towards, uh, you know, kind of scholastic academic achievements and, and uh, all the rest, in encouraging us towards much uh, more kind of uh, to do the things to, for the fulfillment that we could experience that my, both my mother and father didn't have much of an opportunity to or expectation for. So when you when I think of that, then I I begin to uh, uh, this this arises the, the, this gratitude arises. So this is like deliberately reflecting on it, and that I choose to to think like this. Well, I could choose to think of the things I don't like about them. I have a choice, but when I when I start doing that, then. Somehow, you know, now I, I think I don't, I, I, it doesn't, doesn't, uh, I don't see any point in it. Because it, it doesn't bring a wholesome state, it just it brings up this kind of resentment and, and, uh, and a kind of unpleasantness in my mind that doesn't help me in my spiritual development. But if I think in terms of gratitude, or what we call katanyu, katawaiti, this uh, this katanyu gatavaiti is then it then this is a this is a, a joyful kind of feeling that I have. I think of the the goodness of my parents, or the or my teacher Lung Po Cha. I think of him, or of uh, all the good friends, or my my sister who's been, has been always been a good friend, or. Uh, the goodness of the society I was born into. You know, how much freedom, opportunity uh, I've experienced being, being American. <laughs> being born in the, in the kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant privileged group of the Americans. <laughs> <So laughs> or in... Um, and 
been born in on the West Coast. Nice place like Seattle, you know, a pleasant enough uh, place to live and, and grow up and and have so many so much space and so many beautiful mountains and and natural uh, scenery there is, is extraordinary. Gratitude also even even if you know even for um, I even begin to feel gratitude even for the misfortunes of my life. So like when I was in the military, I had you know had a uh, really bad experience uh, the last the last year that I was in the navy, and and uh, I was blamed for something I didn't do, and I was very angry about it. And I was, and nobody apologized. They just kind of dropped it, and and I just left in this state of just incredible resentment and anger, and hatred to the military. And so when I when I left the military, you know, I carried this for years with me, this this resentment. And uh, and, and then in meditation, and when I, in Thailand, I. You know, I began to notice because you're you're reflecting on what what's actually happening in your mind. I notice here I am is twenty years later, living in northeast Thailand in a Buddhist monastery with a, with a great teacher. And then a memory of this thing in the Navy comes up in my mind, and I feel just as angry as I did then. <laughs> so I think, what is this about? You know, that, you know, then my rational mind says, oh, just forget it, you know, it's long ago, things are like that. Because, you know, your, your kind of intellect says, just, you know, forget it, it's nothing, it happened, just drop it, you know, and don't think about it. But Still, you know, even though that's, that might be, sound like common sense, it, it isn't that easy, is it? And you can't just drop it. Uh, because it's an emotion. So the, this particular memory of this unfortunate incident would bring up uh, anger and resentment. So this is what we're reflecting on. We're beginning to see how they connect, how even this, 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 the memory can just, you know, remembering some unfortunate thing in the past, trigger off such a strong feeling. And by, and, and then by noticing that, by paying attention to that, observing it, then I began to uh, see, see how to let go of it. Not just say, don't pay it, just drop it, you know, just grow up, get over it, doesn't matter. Because that's a kind of suppressing of it, isn't it? It's a re denial or a rejection of it. But this way is an ex exploration of it how, it, how it happens. So we, we, since we have retentive memories, then we remember. We especially remember the unfortunate things of our life. You don't remember the ordinariness of your life. You know, just the, the kind of ordinary things that you have in, in most of your life, but you, your memory usually is around the peak moments the, the, or the, the um, nadirs of, of your experience, where you, life at its worst or life at its best. But then this, this was just able to observe this, this knowing in the present, this awareness, uh, can be aware of this, mem this memory. So I can still remember it now. I can bring it up right into my mind right now, just remember. But you notice, I'm not angry. <laughs> I remembered it at that moment. But, uh, but, it, it's, uh, but understanding how it works, then, then the, the emotional habit uh, kind of falls away. You know, you're not feeding it. You're not, you're not fueling that particular emotion anymore. So it loses its, 
its power and its impact on your consciousness. So then I found after a while, because I, I examined that one so much, you know, as a kind of way of looking at how my mind worked, I learned so much from it, and I was actually grateful for having had that experience in the military. <laughs> because, it, it, you know, it gave me something, you know, it, it, I felt so wounded and hurt and so oppressed and so misunderstood and so angry and, and all these kind of, kind of uh, feelings would arise, even wanting to take revenge. Remember, thinking, I'd like, remember this, this uh, Robert Mitchum movie back in the 50s, uh, where he, he, he pursues, he's a kind of psychopath, he pursues this woman, calling her on the phone and threatening her all the time. And I kept thinking, I kept thinking, maybe I should do that to this. this. <laughs> You know, wanting to seek revenge. Fortunately, I'm not vindictive, so I didn't, didn't pursue it. But, but the thought did arise, and it did give me a kind of satisfaction in thinking of torturing the person. You know, these, these kind, of, kind of demonic uh, emotions, I certainly can see how, how you know, they can arise. And the, and the kind of pleasure they can give you of making someone suffer for having made me suffer. But then in, in terms of reflecting, I learned so much from that, that I would, you know, I feel gratitude. It's something that, 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 the, that the problems of my life, the difficulties, uh, all this, and then in seeing, instead of seeing them as in terms of it shouldn't be like this, then these are opportunities to to explore and examine. Because when something really hurts, is really painful, or really unfair, and, and, that, and, and you know, where we can become so righteously indignant and so angry, that also is, is, a, is a chance to learn how, to understand how the, this, this mental process takes place. Because our real interest now is in developing this Buddha mind, this reflective awareness, rather than in demanding life be something according to an ideal that, that, that it should be. Isn't it? Here in England we think everything, like people should be fair. Everything, you know, that we've got to be fair and everything should be, you know, done in, with that in mind. And, and we have these very fine kind of democratic ideals and so forth. But then in terms of experience, life isn't always going to be that way. Sometimes it is, much of the time it's not. <laughs> and to bemoan and bewail the fact that it's not is a kind of, you know, it just makes us miserable. It makes me miserable to just, just dwell on how unfair life is. Or learning from unfairness, learning from the, the, um, the meanness of life, or the pettiness, or the, or the failures, or the, the uh, injustices, as well as from, from the, the good things of this life. Because, as I said before, this, this sense of, of really uh, taking life on as experience, beginning to see that this is what I learned from, from this, this, from the way I am. And this I found in, in, uh, in Buddhist countries, they do have a way of dealing with, with tragedy, with misfortune, uh, in a way that it ha in, in so is much better than what we have in the West. Because for one thing, in the Buddhist country, they recognize that it's natural, it's part of nature, old age, sickness, death, uh, uh, not getting what you want, um, failure and misfortune are can be quite uh, seen in terms of just the way life is, or they or they can say it's their karma. They can say it's my karma. It's a way of accepting something. It can be. It can. The the only criticism I have towards that is that it, one can see it in a kind of 
kind of fatalistic way. It's a kind of uh, just, well, that's a kind of resign uh, resigning yourself to a kind of miserable state in a very passive or negative way. It can be on that level. Or it can be a very wise reflection that, that, uh, that, that the, the things that happen to me are the result of my karma because this, this, is, this, this is, allows me to learn from it. If I just see myself as a helpless victim in a, in a, in a heartless universal system and just say it's my fate and I'm just meant to suffer and, and can't do anything about it, then that, that isn't a reflection, isn't it? That's not awakening to it. It's, it's you're merely uh, identifying with misery and, and, and not learning from it. And kind of resigning yourself and getting depressed by uh, the the un misfortunes of life, but when I say it's my karma, that's not what I'm doing. It's not it's not a justification or a or a uh, passive resignation, but a reflection on if if it's on if it's whatever it is, you know, good or bad. It's what I I learn from. <coughs> so then it gives importance even to the to the uh, misfortunes, the failures, the, the, the problems, the difficulties, the vicissitudes of a human lifetime. Then, we ref then I reflect that I wouldn't be here if it weren't for my parents. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes I remember used to feeling quite angry with them, thinking, you know, here they, they had, you know, the, here I was born in the middle of a depression, Second World War, I grew up during the Second World War. My parents wanted to have uh, children, so they had a few moments of pleasure, and then I have to suffer a lifetime for it. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> you know, they didn't, if they really loved me, they wouldn't have had me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that, that isn't, uh, that's not a, um, that doesn't bring any joy to the heart, or is it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's an impossibility, isn't it? Because this is the way life is, that we're here. In terms of my own parents, I've, I've been, you know, they were good. They were very kind of, they were very devout Christians and, uh, and of a good kind. They weren't kind of um, narrow and, and, and uh, nasty about it. It was a kind of a beautiful kind of Christianity that they, that they were aligned with. So my experience with Christianity was, was very positive, really, uh, as a child. So, and then it also, uh, the quality of their lives. They were very honorable, honest uh, people. And, uh, you know, d did their very best to uh, allow me and my sister uh, to develop yeah, as, as, and following what they knew, what they knew at the time. They weren't arahants, though, my mother. <laughs> so, so they did have, you know, <laughs> they did have their moments. But this is, you know, then we look at our own life, and we then we have uh, forgiveness, don't we? When living in a community, like a monastic community, where you're. You're very much aware of each other, in, in not in just at your best, but at your worst. And and living together in the community, monastic community, we we ask forgiveness from each other. So that even even just uh, with uh, things of, that we might do, things unkind or heedless acts that we might do intentionally or unintentionally. Because sometimes we, we sometimes we don't even know that we're 
upsetting somebody, but we are. <laughs> so even uh, uh, us forgiveness for that. So this is a way, because life is like this, and in living in, in human beings, where in some way always there's this endless possibility of irritating each other or upsetting each other, because there's so many different factors involved in every moment. You know, we have this, you know, you can't just, you know, you've, you've got to take into account that people are, have different attitudes. Here in, at Amravati, it's a multicultural sangha. You know, we've got Sri Lankan, Thai, European, American, uh, monks and nuns living together. So there's, there's bound to be, you know, I irritations or misunderstandings just on the level of we, we, we on a cultural level because we would do think our, our reactions to things can be quite different. Our assumptions can be quite different. And, uh, and our cultural habits can be quite different. But, in, but this isn't what we're interested in, in terms of forcing a conformity, but in reflecting on on, on the way it is, on our own irritation. And instead of blaming external sources now, we're, we're, not, we're, we're, we're stopping that, no longer using that as an excuse of blaming somebody else, but looking at where it all really begins, where the suffering really begins in terms of my suffering. And, and I can say, you're causing me to suffer, or am I making myself suffer because of you? <laughs> and so this is, this is a reflection, isn't it? And, you know, the, the average person say, when you act like that, then I really suffer. You know, your, your insensitivity and your selfishness is making me suffer all the time. I can't live here anymore because of you, is one way of looking at it. Or I can change to seeing that I'm creating a lot of suffering around what you do and what you say. Well, then I can see, I can't, how much right or do I have or ability to control everybody to do things the way they should do according to my standards. <laughs> uh, and, you know, can I do that? I can't, I can't see how I can possibly do that. And if I could, I don't think I would, because it, it's not, that wouldn't be good for me either. <laughs> it wouldn't be good for you. Uh, because the, the lesson isn't in, in, in trying to make everybody uh, into some kind of neutral thing that doesn't upset, threaten me, or uh, irritate me in any way, but in using the irritations, frustrations of our lives for learning, seen in terms of Dhamma. So then we, then we, then we begin to open to life because we're no longer afraid of it. We can, we can look at it. We can look at even the fear of it and the, or the injustices of it or the, the nastiness of it in a way that we begin to understand how, in, how things arise and cease as we see it in our own reflected in our own mind. We also become aware, increasingly aware of the deathless reality that's with us. The stillness, the, peace, the natural peace, the purity that we have all the time that we forget through our endless struggling with our feelings and thoughts and emotions. So I offer this as a reflection today to encourage this, this to, to uh, this using this sense of gratitude to parents as, uh, as a way of, of uh, reflecting and bringing, you know, a sense of, of joy into your life uh, and also recognizing that life is hard work. You know, it's not an easy thing, and uh, and it's uh, and you know most people I know doing the best they can. They don't always do it right, <laughs> but and I don't know anybody that is, is so you know 
wants to, you know, intentionally harm their children or, and there are a few, but those are rare. And usually it's, the harm is done through maybe trying too hard or through just not understanding or through just being overwhelmed with one's own emotional problems. So as we understand this, then we, we have much more compassion and forgiveness for the people around us and also for ourselves. And then this is the way that we find to, for liberation and uh, freedom from suffering and fear. So I offer this as a reflection.